it's so tempting to continue to use the same things that are working well for us like email. Um, but if we get smarter about how we're doing it, we can see some really cool results. And I know you've got a really good example. Do you know what I'm thinking of? I think I do. Was it when we got a shocking result where we cut email volume by 50% and actually got more clicks to the website? This is Inside HubSpot where we take you behind the scenes to uncover the tactics and strategies that grew HubSpot to a $2 billion company with more than 180,000 customers globally. I'm your host, Kat Warboys, and throughout the show, we'll hear from HubSpotters, experts in their field on how we pioneered the inbound methodology, built an award-winning culture, uncovered new channels for growth, created a blog with more than 11 million subscribers, and much, much more. Whether you're a startup or a scale-up, a marketer or the CEO, you'll learn from our triumphs and our missteps that can be applied to help you grow better. HubSpot is known for coining the inbound methodology, a process of attracting, engaging and delighting prospects by adding value first. This methodology is key now more than ever to drive lead generation, especially with stronger customer expectations, new channels emerging and the rise of AI. In this episode, I speak to John Dick, Senior VP of Marketing at HubSpot. John walks us through the evolution of inbound, the crucial channels you should be leveraging, his favorite campaigns at HubSpot, and AI's impact on content marketing. If you're here for some marketing insights, this will certainly deliver. And true to John's style, it's a conversation full of fun and energy. Let's dive in. Today, I am joined by John Dick, our Senior VP of Marketing at HubSpot. Uh, prior to joining HubSpot, John has run marketing at Cloud, as well as a fashion retailer in the US, Trunk Club. He has a very, very fun fact, which he might give us some insight into later today, that before he- Yeah, that's that I was dumped <laughs> under the Eiffel Tower one time, Kat, just so everybody knows. That's my fun fact, is I was once dumped under the Eiffel Tower, the most romantic breakup that's ever been That I did, That was not the fun fact I was leaning with at all. The fun fact was that you, prior to, you know, responding to your calling as a marketer, was that you were, you had a stint as a comedian, but the Eiffel Tower one. <laughs> Clearly I was a talented comedian now that I do B2B marketing for a CRM company. <laughs> it takes us all a while to find our true calling, no, John. It's true. I love my job. I'm a, I work on a marketer's marketing team for one of the best marketing companies in the world. It's incredible. I agree. And you recently celebrated your seventh year at said great marketing company, uh, which is something we actually share in common. We started at a very similar time. Yeah, it's been an amazing ride, huh? Kind of fun to look back on seven years ago and how different HubSpot was and just how different the market was and the world was. Uh, like, it was like pre-pandemic. Like, I used to fly to Sydney all the time and see you. Like, we used to hang out. We used to do stuff. We used to talk marketing. We used to plan stuff. And then I didn't fly anywhere for years and years and years and finally yeah. on the road again. Yeah, and on that note, John, we are allowed to fly again. So when you're coming next? You don't know what I would give for a coffee in Sydney. Hey, <laughs> <I haven't, laughs> you know you already. I am. feel like I haven't had a good cup of coffee since I left Sydney before the pandemic. It's awful. I'm glad you brought it up. Look, I've heard it. Yeah. I've heard your coffee over there compared to dirt water. Uh, I'm gonna. Agree. <laughs> I'm gonna agree with that. <laughs> Who's the comedian now? <laughs> Dirt water. <laughs> Not a comedian, just very passionate about coffee. Passionate. Oh, what a great city, great people, uh, amazing market. I I love visiting Sid Spot. I hope to get out there soon. We're recording at exciting time as well, right? Like we've got our global week of rest next week. Um, for those that don't know about this amazing HubSpot perk, would you mind telling us what that is and how you intend to take your week? 
So one of the things we decided was that a great way to help our employees kind of bring their best selves to work and to, uh, you know, you know, do their best work was to actually shut the company down for a week. Um, we obviously have a support crew in place to help our customers. We want to be sure that uh, everyone is taken care of that's relying on HubSpot every day. Uh, but it's, it's extraordinary because obviously, like, you know, everybody takes vacation at some point, but you all know, it's like you take a vacation and like, you're kind of like, it's like, it's like Tuesday and you're like, Ugh, you're like, should I check? Maybe I should check. Maybe I should just see. And then you check and you're like, I shouldn't have checked. Why did I check? What a mistake. Oh God, I can't believe I checked. And uh, with the global week of rest, um, you're definitely freed of that. And so I'm really looking forward to it. It's incredible. It's an incredible week. It's an incredible benefit of uh, being a HubSpot employee. And uh, for our, my, my, week of rest, I'm going to be going to my in-laws um, and my in-laws have a pool. And so we're going to have a great week hanging out, swimming in the pool. That's a nice reminder that you've got summer over there right now, which I'm very jealous of. Um, and just for the yeah. record, I don't think, I think Australians, and I can say this because I'm not actually Australian, are very good at not checking on holiday. Amazing holiday takers. <laughs> I think you just displayed a big cultural difference there. <laughs> what's that? What's that meme? There's the meme where it's like... Um, uh, it's a cartoon that's drawn that is like, uh, it's like, you know, people in people in Europe taking holiday and it's like their out of office reply is like, I'm sorry, I'm out of the office for the next six weeks. Like, please don't <laughs> reply again. And in the US, it's like, I just had I just had a liver transplant, but I, I can get back to your email today if you need it. A hundred percent. When you've said to us that you were taking a holiday, I actually looked into it and it was basically a long weekend in the US. And I'm like... No, no, four days. Two of those is a weekend. That's a long weekend. That's not a holiday job. Yeah. <laughs> I do take uh, plenty of holidays. And uh, as you know, Kat, as someone who's uh, on the same team as me, I do not engage when I'm on when I'm on holiday. But uh, the, the guilt creeps in, definitely. So the global week of rest is pretty incredible. I'm not surprised. You're responsible for a lot of people. Uh, and as mentioned, you look after the Flywheel marketing team at HubSpot. Um, for those not familiar with the Flywheel, would you mind explaining exactly what that means, what is a flywheel, and how does that translate into the marketing org here and what you're ultimately responsible for? Yeah, I, I love the flywheel, uh, and I always love talking about the flywheel. So the flywheel is basically uh, the concept that essentially you can't win without your customers. And we all generally, as marketers or as salespeople, tend to think about the world as a funnel. Um, and in the funnel every month or every quarter, you dump more and more prospects in and you just try and like move them down the funnel and you spit a bunch out at the bottom and they kind of just spit out and you never really think about them anymore. And one of the realizations we had here at HubSpot was that the world was really changing and that sort of like uh, linear approach probably wasn't going to work as well as it needed to for companies to grow. Um, and that if you, instead of treating your customers like an output, instead treated your customers like the center of your growth, you would actually change your whole way of thinking about how you went to market. So like, for instance, we're in the CRM category. If you do a search for best CRM, I would ask a, a, you know, a, a random person, I'd say, do you, who do you think's on page one of Google? And they'd say, well, probably Salesforce and probably HubSpot. And the truth is like the top rankings for organic are all review sites. They all rely on a company's customers to actually like review them. And Google is looking for more agnostic sources to tell people what the best CRM might be. And so they rely on, 
you know, sites like G2 or Captera and other sites like that to actually reflect what a company's customers think. And so suddenly, if you start thinking of your customers kind of being at the center of your growth um, and at the process of driving growth being a, a circular thing instead of a linear thing, kind of changes your whole mindset. And so our former CEO and now chairperson, Brian Halligan, uh, who's a founder of the company, um, he kind of pioneered this idea of the flywheel. Uh, and I'll never forget, I used to run a team called the Funnel Marketing Team. And one day I got an email from Brian and he was like, hey, I think the funnel's dead. Can we meet to talk? And I was like, oh, no. I was like, I think I'm out of a job now. <laughs> uh, and so I very quickly pivoted our team to be called the Flywheel Marketing Team. And there's been a great pivot for us. We're the Flywheel Marketing Team. And uh, we cover everything related to how marketing supports go to market. Um, so we do all of the product marketing to understand the different markets that we should be in. We do all of the demand gen to attract all of the potential customers. We support our sales team and how to engage those customers really successfully. And we support our customer success team with delighting our customers. And so we kind of have this full customer lifecycle view uh, as marketers, which is really powerful um, because I think when you chunk it up by phase, it causes, it puts blinders up, right? Like all of, if you just think of your website as a way to acquire customers, you miss out on a whole set of opportunities uh, for how to help your customers be successful um, and a whole set of things like that. So it's been a really powerful change for us. Um, and we've been doing it for uh, a couple of years now where we've kind of used this flywheel as our, our mantra. And that's what our marketing team does. Yeah. And it wasn't just the marketing team that change impacted, right? The whole org rallied around it so much so that those go-to-market teams, marketing, sales, customer success, all report to one leader, right? That's right. Uh, so we have a chief customer officer uh, instead of a chief revenue officer. And that chief customer officer doesn't just own sales and customer success, which uh, an average you know, chief revenue officer might own and instead owns marketing, sales and customer success um, and a RevOps team, which centralizes all of the ops for the whole flywheel so that you can focus on creating that um, holistic view of the, the customer journey. Um, and it's been great because, look, I love my sales partners. I'm sure everybody listening loves their sales partners. And if you're sales uh, leaders listening, I'm sure you love your marketeers too. Uh, but we do, we have some disagreements from time to time. And uh, it's amazing to have like a leader who can tie break that's not the CEO. And it's it's been pretty powerful for us. Yeah, 100%. One, one more thought on the flywheel is just that, um, you know, I think we have learned in the years uh, 2022 and, and even more in 2023 as an industry at large um, that just focusing on acquiring customers just isn't enough for business success. Actually, I hear more and more uh, businesses talking about how they're pivoting to focus so much more on retention and loyalty um, and ensuring that the customers they do acquire, they keep those customers and continue to increase their share of wallet with those customers. Um, and so I think through that dimension, you know, the flywheel is very prescient um, and really positioned customers who adopted it to be ready for this change in the market where it's a lot higher to acquire customers um, and you need to rely much more on retaining customers. I couldn't agree more. I wanted to bring it up as well because I was just kind of overwhelmed at a recent event when kind of suspected this shift was happening, but to the extent, you know, we asked the room who was focusing on acquisition and who was really shifting gears to customer retention loyalty. And it was pretty much a case of every hand going up on the customer retention side. And yeah. I think there's so many reasons for this at the moment. And I think with the flywheel, we have a good eye at HubSpot, I like to think. I like to think it's a big part of why we've reached the success that we have is really seeing these trends coming and adopting them early. Like we know the importance of walking the talk ourselves if we are going to 
you know, get our audience to see and come on that journey with us. And we've been talking about the flywheel for a few years, but we're really starting to see our audience come on that journey with us. Uh, and it's definitely a result of some of the the macro headwinds that we're, we're facing. Yeah. And I think we could talk flywheel a lot, but I think the actual kind of cool thing about HubSpot that we're most known for that I want to get us onto is, of course, the inbound methodology. Um, it is something that HubSpot is, I think, most famous for, the coin back in the early days, and really kind of spread like wildfire across marketing communities to begin with. Firstly, how, from your words and perspective, do we define inbound and why did it resonate so well, particularly at the time? So inbound, I love I love inbound. It's one of the things that attracted me to HubSpot. How's that for a pun, Kat? Yeah, so what you did there. <laughs> you like what I did there? I thought that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Uh, You're warming up. You're warming up. We're getting there. <laughs> I'm warming up. Okay. Uh, let's talk about inbound. Uh, so inbound, I think inbound's incredible. I think it um, was one of the greatest breakthroughs in terms of uh, digital internet marketing. Um, and I think, you know, when inbound marketing started, it was really just based on the idea that, um, you know, the outbound marketing playbook was kind of broken. Um, and using a megaphone to yell at your customers and interrupt them was not going to be as successful uh, in an age of Google. And it was all driven around this idea of, you know, buyer behavior change. And, um, you know, buyers were suddenly going to Google and they were searching for companies. Like, it's hard to remember what it was like before Google. But, um, you know, when Google came, it was like, obviously such like a huge breakthrough because it just changed the way that people researched and the power that customers had. And so that's what inbound marketing started as. Instead of using a megaphone to, um, you know, interrupt and yell at your potential customers, you could use inbound marketing and you could attract those customers to you. And it was like a magnet instead of a megaphone. Um, and it was incredible because it it really leveled the playing field uh, for SMBs in particular. Like suddenly the idea was that the size of your mind uh, could beat the size of your wallet. Um, you know, in an outbound marketing megaphone world, all that matters is how much money you could spend. In an inbound marketing magnet world, actually like, you can run really savvy, smart strategies to find arbitrage opportunities in Google and actually attract lots of customers to you. And it did. It really resonated uh, at the time that it came out. And I think it resonated for a few reasons. One is just like outbound marketing just wasn't working. So that helped. Uh, you know, we said, hey, there's a new way to acquire customers or attract customers. And people were like, I kind of need a new way because the old way is not working. Um, but number two is you know, B2B marketers, salespeople, go-to-market teams, like they're just people. And when you pitch them on a new approach or a new technology or any of that, I think the most important thing is like, does it personally resonate with them? And it was really like everybody that we approached and told the inbound story to, they were like, yeah, I get it. Like I use Google to shop now for everything, right? And to research for everything. And so of course, like I need that as a part of my strategy and I should make inbound a huge part of my strategy. And so it did, it, it, it really resonated, it caught fire and it's just continued to evolve. You know, I think the easiest way to like think about what the inbound philosophy is, is the idea that um, as a business, you should add value before you extract value. Um, and back in, you know, 2005 to 2010, that was about free content. 
um, and giving customers free content to educate them so um, they didn't have to just take a salesperson's word for it. They could start to form their own opinion. And that turned out to be incredible value from, you know, 2005 to 2015. Yeah, I agree. And when uh, we both joined HubSpot, you know, seven years ago, and in this market, the team that I was on, we were doing a lot of research around inbound. And I think because of everything you just said, inbound became very synonymous with channel. Um, inbound is a channel, right? It's not mass brand advertising. It's a blog. Um, it's not paid ads. It's, you know, email. Um, and that's, I think, wildly underestimating the value or the whole concept of inbound, right? And so would love to dig into when we joined what did inbound look for us? Like, how were we leveraging it? What were those channels? Because I think you joined at a really pivotal time when we were seeing, even then, that first need for evolution from just content to other ways of thinking of adding value. Yeah, I joined at an incredible moment in the history of inbound and and for HubSpot, honestly, 2016. Um, we've had 10 solid years of uh, essentially just relying on um, attracting customers through content. Um, and one of the things that are you know, HubSpot realized in the, you know, 2013, 14, 15 period was that, um, you know, buyers could actually use free software to begin to learn about a product um, and whether it was a good fit for them. And actually giving free software is way more powerful than giving free content um, because it actually lets them experience the, uh, the product. Um, and so, you know, when we launched, uh, when we moved from just having a marketing application designed for inbound marketers to um, a CRM designed for businesses to essentially manage all of their customer data and unify all that customer data, um, we took kind of a different approach. You know, one of the sayings at HubSpot is, you know, we like to zig while others zag. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when the company launched the CRM and chose to do that in a freemium way, there was pretty... Uh, it was pretty differentiated at the time. It was pretty distinctive. Um, and so not only did it take advantage of the idea that um, what buyers expected in terms of value from a company was changing and content alone wasn't enough anymore, you needed to give more, but also it aligned with just this idea of a different differentiated approach to actually bring a CRM to market. So it was a pretty powerful one-two punch. And um, you know, it, it really, that also really caught fire and became really powerful. And the interesting thing is like, Launching the freemium CRM did not slow down our content, you know, the, all the customers we attracted with content. It actually became its own little flywheel where the more people we had using the free CRM, the more people were talking about the free CRM, the more people were searching for HubSpot and for um, how to go to market with through inbound. It were actually, it, you know, both lifted each other up. Uh, it was kind of a, you know, tide lifts all boats scenario. Um, and we still get, so many leads from our content engine uh, and our and our code engine. Although there are other new ways of adding value that are, are starting to emerge. Um, you know, we're seeing community emerge as a real way to add value as a company. We're seeing more and more here at HubSpot and with our best customers that they're leveraging all sorts of different community strategies to actually attract potential customers to them. We're seeing the, the consultation that a sales rep has uh, with a buyer to be a really unique way to attract people. Having a unique offer as a sales rep for what you can um, do for them um, is, is pretty powerful as well. Yeah, we have essentially two funnels at HubSpot now, right? We call it our signups, which is very much our freemium play and the content side of things. But, you know, I think what's important in this is that customers 
like a whole bunch of resources, right? There's kind of no winning. When you talk about those different ways that we found to add value, whether it was the freemium way or just different tools, right? Like when I look at my region and where the amount of our demand comes from, it's actually the top sources um, equal to the blog are that, the academy and our tools. Um, and so I think the academy and tools are ways that we evolved that whole idea of adding value. Um, do you want to touch on those plays a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I you know, I think for anyone listening who doesn't have uh, access to a software development team that can create a free version of your software app, or if you're in an industry that really there's no freemium option, I think thinking about um, web apps or tools is an incredibly powerful bridge between content and code um, where you say, hey, okay, cool. ROI calculators, um, just, you know, the make, make my persona tool is huge for us. And we have lots of people come to HubSpot and use a make my persona tool. And it's great because it is more than just reading a blog post. It's actually like somebody provides a bunch of information about their company, it turns out. And that information is super valuable for us to figure out if they might be a good fit for HubSpot. And so we're able to then use that to send much more tailored outreach to them um, and engage them more successfully. And if they're not looking like a good fit to not engage them, <laughs> you know, like a whole bunch of things like that. So I think tools, tools have been great for us. They're a huge source. I mean, Academy is another way to evolve content and education, you know, instead of going from, you know, a more casual blog post, you engage in an actual like certification oriented course structure um, or more like cohorted learning experience, um, you know, and so I think if you're a go to market leader and you're trying to think about this, I would just think I'd look around and I look at the things that are interesting to you. Right. Um, and if you are not finding yourself reading blog posts that much anymore and instead are spending all your time in Slack communities with, you know, peer groups, like you should probably think about community as a go-to-market engine. You know, if you yeah. have a unique point of view on something you could build a tool around um, because it's unique to your product, like that's going to get more, you know, it may capture fewer people, but the people that you capture, I think will convert much better, you know, which I think is, is a real win. Yeah. I don't know about you. I often find like, and both of us came from more of a B2C background. We actually both came from uh, retail and fashion um, companies. And I found a lot of inspiration when we have, whenever we look at how B2C works, right? Because for such a long time, B2B felt super dry. It felt like white papers and very sterile conferences. There was no way to really humanize that experience, which I think is something like inbound really gets us to do. And we learn a lot from B2C. Like Kip, our CMO, when I joined HubSpot, I was given his book. Uh, I forget the exact title of it, but it was about like, hey, social media can work for B2B as well. And today you'd be like, well, duh. But like, I think we're always a few steps behind in B2B. But, you know, when we think about that buyer enablement piece, which is a big part of today, how we think about inbound and adding value, we're so good at that in B2C, you know, when you're selling clothes, okay, what does somebody need to make this purchase easier? Okay, they probably need a sizing guide or maybe they want to see through, you know, super cool apps how something might yeah. look on them before they actually buy it, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. When we start to think the way that a B2C, like a just an everyday consumer would would shop, we start to like bring that mentality and find these enablement pieces in the in the B2B world as well. I love that comparison. I think about it all the time. One of my early observations moving into B2B was actually that like B2B and B2C were swapping tactics pretty actively. Like I looked at the things that HubSpot was starting to do and I've like, I've been doing those for like five years in B2C. And then I looked at the things that B2C was starting to do, like an abandoned card email. Like that's just a nurturing flow. That's literally just a nurturing flow. And it's like, yeah, that stuff you didn't used to exist in B2C, right? Or like 
what retailer website do you go to now that doesn't have a pop-up that asks for your email address for 15% off? They're literally just building their database so that they can go do database marketing to you. So it's pretty cool how, uh, you know, the the tactics have kind of swapped over the years. And um, I don't know, it's exciting to, for B2B because I think the idea that B2B should be like, you know, relegated to boring, you know, feature-based marketing is just not, it's not the right way to think about it. Um, you know, I think it can be a lot more interesting than that and a lot more compelling than that. Uh, I agree. We ran some research in Australia recently and we had, we surveyed both consumers and B2B leaders on their like pain points in the buying experience. Very similar. Like people like to think we're very different, but doesn't matter what side of that fence you're on. I think we're actually not, not too dissimilar. Everybody wants to buy in a way that's easy, that you feel like the brand understands you. I actually believe, by the way, Kat, that B2B should be better than B2C because I think we have more to spend as marketers. Uh, and I think that we have more data. I think actually we have more of all the stuff that's required. And I think that we just get in our own way as go-to-market teams because we think we should spend on these low leverage things uh, that, you know, touch only a few accounts and stuff like that. When in reality, like you need to be out building a brand and actually influencing a market at scale. And um, I think B2B has way more to spend on uh, customer acquisition than B2C. Like we used to, like our margins, yeah. Trunk Club were yeah. so tight. Like yeah. oh, I had to meet with the CFO every Monday and tweak every single campaign, you know? And uh, I don't know, B2B typically has more flexibility than that because um, often the margin structures are just much more favorable to, uh, the company than in B2C. I do envy the volumes that B2C work with and how they get to, you know, run some pretty cool predictive like machine learning campaigns on the back end. Like I, I do think they get some fun volume of data on that side, but uh, we haven't done too bad a job of volume on our side, right? And I guess, you know, for those that still want to hear like the power of inbound, like can you, over your time, I know we've got some really great stats up our sleeves, but how can we demonstrate that inbound was working for HubSpot? Like proof proof in the pudding. Uh, well, I mean, when I joined HubSpot, Kat, one of the things that was absolutely amazing, so it's coming from B2C, um, and what was incredible was the Trunk Club marketing team and the HubSpot marketing team had the same budget, and with that budget, we're producing the same revenue. Uh, but the composition of how we spent that budget was entirely different. Trunk Club, we spent 90% of it on paid media. And at HubSpot, we spent like 3% of it on paid media. And we spent all of it on people. Like my marketing team at Trunk Club was like 12 people. And at HubSpot, there were like, you know, 150 marketers or something. And so it was like this huge, like difference in how you actually spent your budget. And I think what was incredible about it was like, in retrospect at Trunk Club, I should have been doing that because all of that content that we produced as the HubSpot marketing team back in the day, it's still paying dividends. It's, yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's a compounding asset that keeps generating leads every month. You know, at Trunk Club, if I, you know, the marketing team disappeared for a month, like the leads would drop off because the budget would dry up and we wouldn't have paid our bills. Like yeah. at HubSpot, if the marketing team had disappeared, then, you know, I think the engine would have just kept running uh, and probably would run for many months. Although I, I hope the marketing team doesn't disappear because <laughs> yeah. we're a great team. That, we do great work. It's very important. Is that why we have the un unlimited leaf policy? Like, we're yeah. not, <laughs> no, we got to work very much. hard. <laughs> somehow, somehow the engine always needs a little more, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> But it is, it's just a very different way to think. And so for me, it was just like a real aha moment. Like, wow, does this inbound stuff work? And wow, have I been thinking about this approach the wrong way when I was in a B2C world um, and I was hyper-focused on paid, you know, 
targeting. Yeah, totally. And I guess on that note, like let's bring some of those inbound concepts to life from a campaign conception to measuring the impact, you know, during your time here, what are some of the best campaigns the team have pulled off uh, on that approach? Yeah, I mean, the campaign that stands out the most to me was our response uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, yeah. And, you know, as a an org, we came together and tried to act really fast. I mean, I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, solve for the customer is one of the guiding principles of HubSpot. And so number one, like we wanted to be sure we had a set of policies and, um, you know, things that would ensure that customers who were trying to figure out how to navigate the crisis, um, you know, we're going to be able to get through that crisis. Um, so there were a whole set of things we did related to pricing and packaging and helping our partners out and a whole bunch of things like that. And that was kind of like level one of our response. But then we sat down and we thought like, well, how do we actually like really help people through this time of uncertainty? And one of the things we realized was that um, nobody knew what was going on. Like nobody knew. Everybody looked at their lead dashboard every Monday morning and thought like, I have no idea if this is good or bad. Yeah. Like maybe this is just what it is now, or maybe I'm doing horribly. And how does this compare? Like how does it compare to my peers? Yeah. So we put a huge effort together and in about two weeks, we got all of our data teams pulled together to basically, um, you know, leverage the fact that we had a hundred and something thousand customers data. And at that kind of scale, you can put together you know, cuts that uh, are anonymous enough that people can look at the trends for their industry, for their company size, for their region, et cetera, and put together a microsite that we updated once a week. Um, and it was just incredibly powerful. It got like, it got great pickup and it was so valuable for that first couple of months of navigating COVID to figure out just like, am I on the right track or not? Um, or, you know, is something off in my approach? Because um, that was the hardest thing. It was like, am I doing something wrong or is macro the thing that is wrong? Um, and so I was pretty proud of that because I thought it really, you know, exemplified the spirit of inbound and adding value before we extracted value um, and did it in a pretty unique way during during COVID. I totally agree. I thought that was probably one of the coolest campaigns I'd seen roll out, um, leveraging the data, helping customers understand what everyone else was doing. I remember really specific trends that came out of it, like weirdly marketing communications were like on the rise in terms of engagement, like people were obviously craving help and guidance from the brands that they were shopping with or wanting to work Turned with. Turned out everybody just was like sitting at their computer all day and so read all their emails. Like marketing email was yep. on fire. Yeah. Turns out people like chat exploded. Yeah. But sales engagement dropped, right? So it was almost like this, not maybe the time to sell, but like continue to communicate, continue to add value yep. and you'll be remembered when brands come out of this. That's right. And if you are going to sell, like you have to do it on a buyer's time because the odds that they're going to have access to a phone and be able to talk to you for 20 minutes without a kid or, you know, a dog or whatever getting in the way are ridiculous. And so they're going to want to chat with you because they don't, they can't get on the phone because they're sitting at their dining room table and their kids sitting across from them on a, you know, trying to do a Zoom second grade class. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it was just, you know, so it, it drove a whole set of buyer behavior changes and we were able to use data to expose what those buyer behavior changes were uh, and encourage people to adapt um, to them. And that's what we called the campaign. We called it Adapt 2020. Um, and it was it was hugely successful for us. And love that being in region, being able to slice that data and see the trends by market, by persona. Yeah. Um, it was massive. It was a big piece of work. It was very cool. Yeah. You touched on this earlier about how, you know, when you joined, you know, Inbound was very synonymous with the channel and that channel really seemed to be about blogging and content at the time. And now that's evolving, community, buyer enablement. 
We touched a little bit on AI as well, and you really can't have a podcast in 2023 without touching on AI. How do you see AI impacting the next wave of marketing and in particular how we think about inbound? Yeah, I mean, it is an exact repeat of 2005 to 2010. Uh, It is a tech platform change. Back then it was Google, and now it's generative AI. And that tech platform change is going to drive a massive change in buyer behavior. Yeah. And one of the things that's incredible about it is just like back in the early 2000s with search, Gen AI is another trend and platform change that actually has the, like, the ability to benefit SMBs. It's going to let SMBs compete better than they could previously because it's going to give them access to content resources, to coding resources, to a whole bunch of things that they would otherwise have to spend tons of money on. And SMBs are cash strapped most of the time. Um, and so in any world, like it's, again, it's a size of mind beats size of wallet situation. So like as, as somebody who lived through the last platform shift and was part of a company that really championed, um, you know, that platform shift and how it could benefit SMBs, I am so excited about Gen AI for that reason. You know, I have a lot of beliefs about Gen AI, but one of the things that I really believe um, deeply is that a lot of companies are going to think about using it in the wrong way. They're going to say, Gen AI gives me access to create more content, so I am just going to spin up thousands of blog posts and send hundreds of thousands of emails uh, to my prospect base, and I will therefore hit my number. And I think that's going to backfire on them. Um, And I think the other thing they're going to obsess about is like, how do I maximize the efficiency of my team? And my sense is that uh, the future will not be about volume because content volume strategies will be completely commoditized is instead about value or influence of content. Um, And instead of obsessing about efficiency of your team, I mean, of course, you'll get some efficiency gains. You need to obsess about the effectiveness of customers being able to accomplish their objectives. Um, so instead of obsessing about a, you know, uh, an efficiency metric, I would obsess about a conversion rate metric and get so excited about the idea that you're going to be able to take a whole bunch of stuff that you used to have to go talk to a human to get answers to and to be able to have a conversation with. And you're going to be able to pull that into an automated experience that's going to let you as a buyer make really informed and smart decisions. And I'm sure that'll be scary to a lot of companies but it also is just if you invest in it and lean into it, like you will be part of the rising tide. Um, so I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a huge change for how companies go to market. Um, I think I don't think it's going to replace sales reps. I think it's going to up level sales reps, which sales reps want to do anyway. By the way, yep. Like it's I think it's I think it's going to be great. I agree. We found for some research here in Australia that. A whopping 78% of go-to-market teams here are already using AI, which was, I mean, I'm excited people experimenting with it, but it was certainly higher than I than I thought it would be. And 45% said that they're using it every day. Um, but to your point on like, you know, using it in the wrong way, the same research told us that 67% of B2B leaders here in Australia at the moment are seeing growth slow and challenges around strategies that were working for them really well a year ago that just aren't yielding the same results. So yeah. really hammering hard on things. And I know we've actually got a bit of a, a killer story, John, where it's so tempting to continue to use the same things that are working well for us, like email. Um, but if we get smarter about how we're doing it, we can see some really cool results. And I know you've got a really good example. Do you know what I'm thinking of? I think I do. Uh, was it 
when we got a shocking result where we cut email volume by 50% and actually got more clicks to the website. It might be that one. It might be that, that one. That was the one, yeah. Oh, what a great, oh. We just had a hypothesis. We were like, we're way over emailing people. Like, and I bet if we reduce our email volume, I bet engagement will actually go up. And I bet it will force us to, where um, it will it will allow us to only put the best content into email. And I bet that people will open more of our emails. And I mean, of course you expect click-through rate to go up. It's not about click-through rate. It's actually about the actual number of clicks. Um, so it was absolutely incredible. I think we, can't remember the exact stat, but we cut volume by 50%. I think we got um, overall like visits from email up 20 or 30% or something like that. So it was an incredible payoff. And I think there will be all sorts of counterintuitive trade-offs like that. Yeah. I do think, Kat, on your point about like growth in the old playbook, this is definitely a build a new playbook moment. Yeah. I think for years, our, our industry has been very sales dominated and the sales formula was like a more, more, more formula. It was, I hire more reps, have them do more activities and give them more tools and we'll eke out some productivity gains every year. And I just think that strategy will not work in a world where Gen AI is out there. And as I said, like sales reps will continue to dominate because humans wanna talk to humans, but I think that a more, more, more strategy won't work for them. I think it has to be a better, better, better strategy. And you need to have essentially, you know, better reps with better outreach uh, and better tools. And I think if you go with that sort of strategy, um, you know, I think it'll be powerful. And I think that the expectation when you get on the phone with a rep is going to go way up. Yeah. And so like your enablement programs are going to have to improve. You're going to have to like help train your reps up to be real business problem solvers and go from you know, kind of like discovery to diagnosis. Um, there's a whole bunch of changes that'll happen there. And I, I think it's, I think it, um, you know, the companies that lean into that, I think will really benefit. Yeah, I agree. And I bring it up because, you know, again, that research we touched on found that the number one complaint people had with their brand experiences, both on the B2B and as consumer side, was that kind of like being really, unfortunately, spammed, hammered by marketing. Uh, and I think AI is actually going to do to the example we saw years ago, not you know, spurred on by AI, but just a, a different kind of belief that it's going to enable us to do um, less, but it's going to be so much more highly targeted, so much more highly effective that we can do less and actually get the same result and stop like, I guess, and pissing our customers off with just yeah. bombarding them. And I think that's a really exciting part of this. And to your point on what does that mean for marketers and salespeople, the way I think about it is brands are going to have to figure out that balance where we use you know, AI and technology for convenience and people for human connection. That's right. Uh, and that's a that's a really exciting phase that I think we're going into. It's a phase we've been going towards for a while. We just haven't had the tools for it to be good. Like everybody wants marketing automation to be good, right? Yeah. And as marketers, like the company's like, go do the automation stuff. And you're like, it'll be like, it's, I mean, it's like, Every company should have a marketing automation strategy and you can make your marketing automation for a core set of your company use cases or go to market use cases really good. But I think one of the things that is an interesting rally and cry for me about Gen AI is this move from like personalization to being personal. Um, and I think that personalization has always kind of like fallen short of expectations because you just have like, you have limited structured data on a person and it's only getting harder to get that structured data and actually you're going to need a lot more like ability to process unstructured data and signals and a whole bunch of things like that yeah so i think it's going to actually make marketing automation like 
much, much, much better. I think bots are going to explode. I think you're going to see websites really transition from being um, click-oriented to uh, conversation-oriented, and I think that'll be pretty cool. Really conscious of time. John, it's been a really great conversation. Um, I certainly got a lot from this, even though I knew some of the answers. <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Kat, uh, thanks for having me. This was really fun. I love talking HubSpot. I love talking go-to-market. Uh, I think... I, don't, I think our, our approach in ANC is incredible uh, and APAC is incredible. So keep going. Yeah. I also heard you say you loved events. So uh, <laughs> that's a debate you and I. I didn't say I, didn't say I love events, Kat. <laughs> I said say, we're doing them to we help should. accelerate deals. <laughs> More events. Let's do it. Thanks for tuning in to Inside HubSpot. If you liked what you listened to and want to hear more stories, please subscribe and check out all resources in our show notes or head to hubspot.com forward slash inside HubSpot. We'll catch you on the next episode. Bye.